Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all livestock and all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And may the Lord bless the reading, preaching of his word this morning. We have been talking and discussing the idea of how our world, our culture is in the mess that it's in is because we as humans have rejected what God has created. That's why the title of this series of messages is called Creation and this cultural crisis. The fact is, we don't want to live the way that God designed us to live. And as a result, we find our world in the mess that it's in. And so, talked about it a couple weeks ago, we deny the reality of God. We act like God is not real, that He does not exist. Last week we talked about the fact that we have devalued life. Life no longer has meaning and purpose and, and value. We've decided that if you are this or that or the other, that your life doesn't count. And of course, one that we see playing out in our world and maybe has already played out is the topic that we are looking at this morning, and that is the institution and the creation of marriage. Marriage is not according, or despite, I should say, what our betters would tell us in society, it is not simply a cultural construct. It is not a way to oppress one gender or the other. Marriage is not a figment of our own imagination or some kind of creation of our own imperialism or colonialism or whatever words you want to use create marriage is something that is so much deeper and so much stronger than what our world wants to make it out to be marriage is a creation of the almighty god 
And marriage is something that was there at the very beginning. God is the one who created the institution of marriage. God is the one who, despite the fact that it's in my little clerical ministerial books and I can say at your wedding or whatever, to say let what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. We say that for a reason because God Himself is the one who has designed and created this thing called marriage. It is not something that our Supreme Court, our Congress, our President, whoever has any jurisdiction over. It is a creation of God Himself. And when we defy what God has created, when we rebel and we reject, we distort what God Himself has made, we find ourselves in the mess. So today we want to look at God's creation, His good creation, His creation of marriage, His creation of joining a man and a woman together in one flesh and harmony and unity out of two, making one new family and see why It is so vital, so important, so important that we as a church stand and defend, protect, and honor this institution. I want to do it in two ways. I want to, first of all, just simply explain this passage, this text to you, because there's so much in there. It is so rich and so foundational to the rest of Scripture and the rest of God's plan for humanity. And so we want to begin, first of all, by explaining the text, and then, secondly, we'll draw some implications from the text. And so we begin this morning, first of all, with an explanation, simply an explanation of of these eight verses, because there's so much, like I said, so much truth, so much richness that you can gain. They really are one of the most powerful narratives, one of the most powerful paragraphs in all of the Bible. So we need to take time to look at these things. So we begin in verse 18 here, chapter 2, and we read these words again. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now you read those words and, and I'm, automatically you should be struck by the irony of that sentence that God states when He says it is not good that man be alone. Because you go back to Genesis 1.31 and you read these words, God saw everything that He had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and morning, the sixth day. Now, How can we have this dichotomy here where where God is looking over creation, including mankind, and saying it's good, and yet He's turning around and saying, wait a second, something is not good here. God is saying in this verse that the creation of Adam simply by himself alone was not a good thing. And right away we can understand that the purpose of God is for man and woman to live together and hope 
understanding and communion with each other. We can see this right away that God's design is for a man and a woman to come together and live together in harmony and communion with one another. This does not mean, obviously, that every person should get married. Jesus talks about that. There are some who are eunuchs simply because of their devotion to the gospel. Jesus himself was a single person. The Apostle Paul was undoubtedly a single person, at least during the time of his writings. There are those who are single and devoted to the cause of Christ who choose to live alone and God blesses them and whatever else. But the vast majority of human society does not have this desire, does not have this calling, and instead does understand that their purpose is to find and become involved in a marriage relationship. That's the way God has created and ordered us. It is not good that we be alone. And so we see in verse 18 that God has stated it's not good for man to be alone. And then we are told that God is going to make a helper. A helper fit for him. It's not like, let's not get sidetracked by this word helper, okay? Sorry, guys, God did not create a domestic servant for Adam here. Okay, God did not create someone to do his dishes and pick up his shoes and vacuum his floor. I don't know if Adam had shoes, but. No, the word helper, in fact, is the same word that is used of God Himself. Consider Psalm 33, verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Exact same Hebrew word. And so the idea that your wife, your spouse is supposed to be your servant or inferior to you in any way cannot be justified by reading the Scripture. The truth is the Scripture is teaching us of the indispensable role of the woman in God's created order, both man and woman, as we saw last week, are created in the image of God. And what the man is lacking in and of himself, the woman supplies, makes up those missing pieces. One commentary states, helper, it's not a demeaning term and is often used in Scripture to describe God Almighty. The description of her, of Eve, as corresponding to Him means basically that what was said about Him in Genesis 2-7 is also true about her. They both had the same nature. But what man lacked, after all, his aloneness was not good, she supplies and what she Lacked, he supplied. The culmination was one flesh, the complete unity of man and woman in marriage, since Adam and Eve were a spiritual unity, living in integrity without sin. At least in this part, there is no instruction on headship that is addressed later by the Apostle Paul relation to the order of creation. But what we see here is that a man and a woman are joined together and become one complete whole. She supplies what he 
is missing. So we see that God knows, God understands. Man is not to live life alone, that he needs to be complimented, that he needs to be made whole. And God intends to create a woman to fulfill that role. Verses 19 to 23 tell us how God does this. Again, verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. God has created the animals. He's created Adam. And now the animals are paraded in front of Adam. They're brought to where Adam is. Adam looks at each one and he says, There's an elephant, there's a zebra, there's a lion and tiger and bear. Oh my, thank you. Somebody's paying attention. God creates all of these things and He gives them the name. And yet in the midst of all of this parade, in the midst of these animals coming, verse 20 tells us something. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds heavens to every beast of the field but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him comes the kitty cat Adam pets it the cat ignores him like all cats do goes on the dog licks his hand glad to see him Birds are singing in front of them. And yet in in all the excitement of these different animals, Adam realizes something is missing. Now the old joke is you can tell whether your wife or your dog loves you more, which one loves you more by locking both of them in a closet. You lock them in a closet and then after a while you let them out and you see which one is happy to see you. Now, I don't suggest that, especially you guys here in the church, because I'll be doing a lot of hospital visitation this week. Or you might be sharing a room next to me. We laugh and we think it's funny, but the, the fact of the matter is, Fido can never supply what your spouse, your wife, your husband provides for you. Lucky your cat, as wonderful as they may be, and and like to sit on your lap. They can never, that cat can never, ever supply what is missing. Adam realizes in the midst of this zoological paradise, in the midst of this wonderful zoo where all of these animals are up close to him, there is a missing piece in his heart and his life. God says it is not good. Verse 21, the Lord God causes deep sleep to fall upon Adam, fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. Verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Knowing the missing piece in Adam's heart, God causes him to fall into a deep trance, almost a death-like sleep, a deep form of unconsciousness. And while in his sleep, God opens up the side of the man, and from his side, he pulls, he extracts a rib, and he begins to form and fashion 
the woman. Now the word that the English Standard Version, which is what I'm reading out of your version, may say something a little bit different, but the word that the ESV translates made is actually the word built. God is building, literally building the woman out of the rib of a man. He is depicted as a builder who constructs the woman from the raw resources that is supplied by Adam. Again, we see anthropomorphic language. It simply means describing to God language that we understand as humans. When you, when you see God being described as a potter or a builder, again, you are showing His special involvement in the creation of the human family. This is different, again, than, than just the creation of the animals from speaking and saying, let there be a giraffe or let there be a lion. No, God takes time to specifically work with His hands and to construct man out of the dirt and to construct the woman from the rib of the man. Building block for constructing the woman is a portion of the man's essential skeletal frame the woman is taken from man's side to show that she is of the same substance of the man and to underscore the unity of the human family having one source this is made clear by the man's description of her she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh the word took here which is given prominence in the narrative may anticipate a marital union of the two, since it is the common idiom for marriage. Ancient commentator Matthew Henry, 16, 1700s, is one who wrote in his commentary that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Adam lost a rib without any diminution to his strength or comeliness, but in lieu thereof, he had a help meet for him abundantly made up his loss God takes away from his people he will one way or another restore Matthew Henry's words and they're so powerful they're so prevalent God made the woman out of the side not out of our head to rule not out of our feet to trample on and be subservient but there to be loved to be cared for to be provided protected for verse 23 the man said this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man again the joke is adam wakes up from this deep sleep and he sees beautiful eve there and he says whoa man look at her and that's where her name comes from but in actuality, this is not far from the truth. And obviously it didn't happen because Adam didn't speak English probably, but it's not far when you read these words. This isn't Adam just saying, well, this is bone of my bone. No, this is an exclamation. 
Adam looks at her and he says, at last, at last, this is, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I need in my life. She is bone of my bone and flesh. This is what I have been missing. The Hebrew word for man is ish, while the Hebrew word from woman is isha, made of man. Adam is declaring that Eve, that the woman is now a part of him. She is the missing part. She is the missing link in his life. Again, we can go to Lehigh Valley Zoo or the Bronx Zoo or Philadelphia Zoo. We go to SeaWorld and watch the great killer whale and all this other stuff and we shout and we exclaim joys, giggles and laughs. But it was nothing compared to the way Adam felt when he saw Eve for the very first time. This is bone of my bone and flesh my flesh. So now the commentator, the writer, whoever it is, Moses or the one who had written this that Moses eventually compiled into the text here in Genesis adds his own commentary in verse 24 when he says, therefore, therefore because of what we read about how Eve was made, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they too become one flesh. A man leaves his father, his mother, and he holds fast to his wife. This is not telling you that you must cut off all communication from your mother and father. In fact, we know from the Bible in ancient times, a man would often build a house right next to his father's house. I don't want to disappoint you, and I know it's a wonderful song or whatever else like that, but when Jesus says in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you, Jesus is not building a mansion over the hilltop for you. I'm sorry. Don't worry, you're not going to be disappointed when you see your eternal home. No, Jesus is saying, I am building a dwelling place. And he has this image in mind. There in his father's house, there is a room, there is a place. And so this is not telling you to cut off all communication. But it is saying to you that the obligation of man and woman in marriage is no longer your mom or your dad. It is now your husband or your wife. She is number one in your life, not your mama. And I know mama takes care of you, mama irons your clothes, and mama makes you breakfast in bed. Guess what? Mama now has second place in your life. I know daddy does everything for you, and you're a daddy's girl, and that's all wonderful, but you've got to understand, daddy now has second place in your life. This husband, this wife, this person you said I do too is now your primary focus and obligation. 
Again, another commentary. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. The writer says this, as it's taught to us, we now encourage couples to reflect soberly on their relationships with their parents and future spouse. We are now convinced of this profound insight that many problems which emerge in a marriage can be traced back to a failure to leave a parent's house. Emotionally, financially, or even physically these days. Or a failure to cling to one spouse emotionally, financially, or physically. The ability of man and woman to become one flesh appears to be dependent on the mutual leaving. This verse does not suggest cutting off relationship with families and becoming codependent with the spouse. Something almost unimaginable in ancient multi-generational agrarian life. Rather, it suggests that a new thing is formed by this story. This relationship, later called marriage, is something different from the lives of the individual spouse. It's not just that a man leaves his father and mother, though. It's also that he becomes one flesh. One flesh, certainly in the physical union, in the sexual act, in the sexual relationship. But one flesh, so much more. The two people, although free from their parents, are not isolated and independent. They become dependent and responsible for each other. And again, just as the source of the woman is the man, here it depicts the consequence of their bonding, which results in one new person. The sexual union of the couple is just symbolic of the new kinship that the couple has entered. And so even though we become one in a literal sense, through the act of marriage, through the sexual relationship, the fact is all of our lives are to be one with each other. As we live together, as we take responsibility for each other, as we learn to love each other. This oneness leads to verse number 25. The man and his wife were naked naked and not ashamed. Certainly not ashamed because this was before the fall, the innocence was there. But also not ashamed because their union has not been marred by sin. They lived in a perfect oneness with each other, a perfect unity, a one flesh relationship that declares the goodness of God and reflected His image. There was no need for them to hide anything from each other. There's no need to shift blame or to do anything else. They were completely unified as a couple. And so we see the explanation of this passage of Scripture now. Let's get some implications from this text. Let's get some implications here. Why, why did he... Choose Did God in His wisdom choose to make this such a valuable part of Holy Scripture in the creation context? There are three things that we can draw from this. First one is this. God's intention has always, always 
always been for one man and one woman to be united in marriage for life. God's intention has always been this. This is more than just the creation narrative. It becomes foundational for the rest of the biblical text. Becomes foundational, the guidance for civilization. This is what God created from the beginning. In fact, Jesus himself refers to this account. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left there. He went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them. Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 3, Jesus answers, What did Moses command you? They said, Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce, send her away. And notice Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, Moses did this, yes, but it was because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning of creation. From the very beginning of time, God created them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Do you hear those words? Yes. It is true because of sin, because of your hardness, God allows divorce. And it is true still today that sometimes divorce is an inevitable consequence of sin in a life. But from the beginning of creation, that was never God's intention. God created man and woman to live together. Again, I'm probably quoting too much from commentaries this morning, but there's just so much there that I found this week. Here's another one. God never commands in the Old Testament, scarcely commands in the New Testament that a man should be married to one woman and ideally for the entirety of his life. In the New Testament, it comes by implication of Jesus' teaching against divorce. I quote Matthew 19, but it's the same thing that I read here. Mark and Paul's teaching the church leaders that an elder, a deacon, should be married to one woman. Even when Leviticus carefully restrains the sexual relationships that are impermissible, with exhaustive lists, nowhere does it say what kind of spousal relationship God commands. And so when sincere people ask, where in the Bible does it say we can only be married to one opposite sex spouse, they might presume that Scripture ought to have a clear answer. In the form of commandment, they are then surprised it does not say that. However, Commentary goes on, Scripture not only argues for such a marriage, but does so in the strongest terms available through the creation narrative. In other words, God is arguing for a one-man, one-woman marriage through the creation narrative itself. 
For Leviticus, all other sexual relationships are critiqued in light of Genesis 2. If we look at the sexual teaching in Leviticus 18, it presumes the depiction of man discovering his spouse in Genesis 2 is the clearest argument for the fundamental nature of marital relationships in the universe. The way it is supposed to be. Across the Old and New Testament, the creational norms of Genesis 2 provide the measure for all sexual relationships. This is why as a church we stand strong on the idea of marriage. It's more than just being some kind of killjoy or fundamentalist or whatever you want to call it. No, this is God's intentional design from the beginning. It's not a very good argument, but it is true. God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Jane and Susie and Joanna, so on, so forth. God has always designed one man, one woman living together. And again, we don't read that in our Constitution. Well, it's probably because our founding fathers understood this truth. Understood this truth, and here we are, we're rejecting this truth, and, and we're, we're, we're acting like we don't understand why the world is, is in the mess that it's in. It's pretty obvious. When you reject what God creates and designs, it always leads to chaos and destruction. So we see that God has always designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. But second thing you can see from this text of Scripture is this. God deemed marriage so important, so important that He uses marriage to typify his relationship to the church. God uses marriage to explain, to help us to understand what it is like with his relationship in the church. Now, you've got to think, when you, when you read through the Bible, we read all kinds of ways where God is explaining his love. He's explained as our father, even as a mother who cares for their children. Prophet said, can a mother forget her nursing child? Of course, she can, neither can I forget you. Jesus goes so far to compare his love for Israel to a mother hen and a bunch of chicks. But yet when it comes to us in the church, what does the Apostle Paul use as an analogy? He uses the marriage relationship. Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands. It's to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, do you see this already? Just as the wife submits to the husband, so the church submits to Christ. Just as Christ loves the church, so the husband ought to love his wife. 
Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. Splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And here are the key words. Because we are members of his body. Notice what Paul writes. Therefore, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. You hear those words? Sound familiar? Yeah, right back to Genesis chapter 2. Right back to what was written thousands of years ago. The beginning of time, God said a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Paul said, I'm referring to Christ and the church. The way he loves us, that love that we sang about and we're going to sing about here at the end. It's typified by the love that you have or should have for your husband, your wife. See, marriage is more than just, again, as some kind of social construct. It demonstrates to the world this is how Christ loves us. This is how Christ loves us. And even though I mess up, she doesn't turn and run away and say, you're an idiot and no good for nothing. No, she accepts me despite my mistakes. And that's how it is with God when I sin. I confess my sin. He is faithful and just to forgive me. When there's times of greatness and prosperity, and it's like, why don't we just go to the mall and go on some kind of spending spree which we haven't experienced that yet but maybe one day we will times of health and blessing and prosperity there's times when we don't know if the lights can stay on and the rent can be paid we commit we stick to each other this is what Christ does for us this is why it's more than just a mother hen caring for her chicks. It is a husband and wife together as one. So it is with Christ, the one who will never let us go, who will never let us out of His hand and out of His love. Finally, marriage is so important that the Bible, the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. Begins and ends with the marriage. Human history and ends. Marital relationship. Genesis 2, we're talking about it here. We're looking at it. We're seeing it. We see marriage, the foundation of civilization, the foundation of life. Fast forward to the end of time just before or 
just as, I should say, at the second coming of Christ. Revelation 19, verse 6, And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be at church ready for you. Every heart longing for her king, we sing, even so, even so come. Jesus explains to us, of course, that in the eternal state, there's not a marriage. There's not a marriage relationship. He does this by pointing out, you know, Sadducees come to him and says, hey, look, there's a poor woman who marries six brothers and they all die. Don't you feel sorry for that poor woman? Finally, she dies. It says in the eternal state, who's where she be? And Jesus says, there's not going to be marriage here. We're going to be married to our Savior, our King, our Christ. But while we are here in time, while history is marching on, from the last 6,000 plus years to today and on as long as the Lord grants life here on earth before the new heavens and the new earth, it is His intention and design that man and woman be united together. So much so that we are typified as His bride. The church is His bride. This is why it's so important. This is why it matters. This is why we can never, ever, ever remove our stance. I'm here today to tell you the grace of God as long as I am here I believe I can say this David and Jim, our elders here, their support and their backing as long as I am here. By the grace of God, we will never change or compromise that position. One man, one woman should be united together in marriage. Should be that way for life. If they come and they say, you better perform same-sex relationships as a church, we'll dissolve. We come in unregistered church, we'll meet in houses, whatever we have to do. We will not compromise on this point. They come and they say, everyone does it now. You can marry your cat and your dog and your three next door neighbors and your cousin and your whatever else. We're not going to compromise. It's not that we're hard-hearted. It's not that we want to deny anybody fun or joy. It's because we know what God said was very good. And that is this institution of marriage. So let me finish with a few concluding points here. I've gone too long. First of all, if you're married here this morning, you need to fight to protect and strengthen that marriage. 
Nothing is more important in this world, not your children, not your spouse, or not your, sorry, your children, your career. No, your spouse is. Your relationship with that, well, I don't, I, I just, you know, I married, you know, I tell Mary every once in a while, it's like, I'm sorry, you married a guy who was skinny and had hair and was good looking, now you've got me gray hair and falling out, overweight. Now there's nothing more important. Nothing more important. Not our job, not our children. And, and look, there's times, and, and we're there, and many of you are there, where sometimes your marriage has to take a back seat because you're caring for an elderly loved one who's on the throne, verge of death. But there are times when you have to tell your mom, your dad, or whatever, say, I'm sorry. I can't meet your needs. I must take care of my husband and wife. And yes, I know, again, when, you're, when your children just come home from the hospital and they're a mess and they want to eat every two hours and, and they're up and you don't have time to, to, to really cement that relationship because the needs of the child are there. But there comes a time when you have to get back and say, look, kid, eat crackers and watch TV. I have to take care of your mom or your dad. I have to be there for them. Second thing I want to say is this if sin has entered your marriage, maybe maybe your marriage is dissolved or broken up, there's divorce, whatever. Maybe you're still together, but you're fighting, sin has entered. I want you to know this is not the unpardonable sin. And I say this because a lot of us, a lot of us were raised in fundamentalist churches. And we're, it's made out that, if, you know, if you, if you dare, if you dare get involved in divorce or whatever, your, your life is over. You might as well just become a pagan because God will not forgive you. And that is not the case. And if there is sin in your marriage and it's manifesting itself in adultery or abuse or whatever else, there are times when the marriage has to be broken and dissolved and whatever. I encourage you to come and talk to me. We have partnerships with Foundations Christian Counselor. I'm not a professional counselor. I'll do the best I can. We'll get you in connection with a professional counselor that can help you. But it's not perfect because sin has entered the world. But understand you are loved by God and you are forgiven and you can walk in grace and freedom. We don't have to let the guilt of the past Weigh us down. If you're here this morning and you're not married, please don't be deceived by what the world is offering. What the world is offering will never, ever satisfy. By that, I mean pornography, homosexuality, casual hookups, polyamorous relationships. All of this stuff that we are told is normal and good and we should embrace it. Maybe fine for now. But the pleasures of sin are only for a season. What God has created is what is good. 
Finally, you need to make sure your relationship with Jesus Christ is first and foremost. If you don't know him as Savior, you have to start there. I challenge you, if you've never done that, if you've never asked him to come into your heart and forgive you of your sins, today, now is that time. Now is that time. I wish I could say that our marriage has been perfect. It hasn't. None of us will. We're committed. I pray that you'll be committed. No matter what, the fight for what God has given you. Protect what God has given you. What God has joined asunder, let not anything put asunder. Amen. Let's pray this morning, shall we? Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the love of an almighty God who has sent his son to die for our sins. Lord, who has come into our heart, into our life, to make us new, to make us like him. Lord, I thank you for ones here in this church who are 50 and even 60 years of marriage. <coughs> Lord, I thank you for the example that they provide. Lord, I pray that we as a church would continue to always strive and fight for that which you have created, that which you have called good. We would love each other just as you love us. Lord, I stand here and I ask for forgiveness from you. I know, I know I haven't always been the best husband I can be. I'm selfish, I'm self-centered. Put my own interests ahead of my wife's. I pray that you forgive me. Lord, I'm sure she could say the same. I'm sure that all of us could say the same. Forgive us. Help us to understand what we have in each other is a small picture of what we have in you. Bless and strengthen, stabilize every home, every family in this church. Lord, may the world see our families and see people that really love God and love each other. May they be one to your love, I pray. Do that in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're going to finish with an old hymn this morning. Again, the love that we have for each other, husband and wife, is a small picture of the love that God has for us. One of my favorite songs ever, probably. Love of God, how rich, how pure. How measureless and strong. Will forevermore endure. Saints and angels song.